0: That story that Berg told, that really is the founding myth for the SPCA that Berg, surprisingly, you know, people pinned him as as the great animal lover of the late 19th century, but he really didn't uh, love animals very much. He he probably loved them less than, than many people. He didn't particularly, you know, he didn't own pets. He didn't care about, you know, owning a horse in particular. And it wasn't animals that he loved so much, but he did hate the sight of human cruelty. And being an ambassador to St. Petersburg, where apparently the Teamsters were even more abusive of their horses than he'd seen in the streets of New York, he finally broke one day and, and demanded that one of these Teamsters drop his whip. And when it worked, Berg just says this was you know, an epiphany for him that changed the course of his life. He was at that point 53 years old. He had been sort of a failed playwright, a wealthy dilettante who spent most of his his years in uh, the capitals of Europe, uh, writing very, apparently very bad plays and sentimental poetry. And suddenly he had a, you know, really a conversion experience to what he should devote his life to. And he was quite an unlikely character to suddenly be roaming the streets of New York and taking on teamsters and, and dog fighters and the sort of rough characters that he very often had to, had to battle in his new job as a humanitarian.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series of the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this animal studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Ernest Freeberg. Professor Freeberg's teaching and research interests center on the cultural and intellectual history of the United States in the 19th and early 20th century. His most recent book, second to the one we will be discussing today, The Age of Edison, explores the impact of electric light on the development of modern American culture. He offers graduate and undergraduate courses on American social and cultural history from 1870 to 1930, American religion, antebellum reform and abolitionism, historical methods, and the history of the First Amendment and the impact of war on democracy. Freeberg is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, has served on the editorial board of the History of Education Quarterly, and has produced a number of public radio documentaries on historical themes. Professor Freeberg's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2020's Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement, a Traitor to His Species, published by Basic Books. In Gilded Age America, people and animals lived cheek by jowl in environments that were dirty and dangerous to man and animals. The industrial city brought suffering, but it also inspired a compassion for animals that fueled a controversial anti-cruelty movement. From the center of these debates, Henry Berg launched a shocking campaign to grant rights to animals. A traitor to his species is revelatory social history, awash with colorful characters. Cheered on by thousands of men and women who joined his cause, Berg fought with robber barons, Five Points gangs, and legendary impresario P.T. Barnum as they pushed for new laws to protect trolley horses, livestock, stray dogs, and other animals. Raucous and entertaining, a traitor to his species tells the story of a remarkable man who gave voice to the voiceless and shaped our modern relationship with animals. Welcome, Professor Freeberg, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Mark. First off, uh, thank you for writing this book. Henry Berg is unquestionably a major figure in the history of animal rights, and the animal welfare movement was undoubtedly in its time a major advancement towards greater compassion towards animals. Berg and his fellow welfareists did important path-breaking work in their time, and the stories deserve to be told. So thank you.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure. I, I feel like it was really, uh, for somebody who's thought a lot about this time period, uh, it was really a surprise to me uh, to hear about Berg. We think of this as a time of, of uh, great reforms with the development of the progressive era, but I really had not encountered much discussion about animals uh, until I ran across Henry Berg's story.
1: It's it's common. <laughs> if you, I, I come from an animal rights perspective, and when you have that perspective, you notice that people aren't really talking about it very often. It's, it's not a major concern for, for most people, most writers, most historians. So honestly, sincerely, th- thank you for caring enough to tell this story. I, I do think it's, it's, it's worth telling and it's important to talk about these things. Well, thanks. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, and the focus of your work.
0: Well, I've been interested for quite some time in this late 19th, early 20th century period, mostly because I I see it as the origins of most of our own problems and issues uh, and advances, you know, issues about uh, the rights of labor and economic inequality, free speech rights emerge in this period in, in a modern form, disability rights, our fascination and our dread of technology. All of these things are, are fermenting in this time period, and, and that's why I found that really fascinating. And what moved me toward this book was realizing that another profound change that was signaled in this period, that begun in this period, is our relationship to animals. By the end of this period, which we you know may say in the, in the early 20th century, the 1920s or so, cities were largely sanitized of animals. A historian has recently described uh, the world we live in in urban environments as one w- where we, ha- we are surrounded by pets and pests. And I think that's a good way to think about it, that, that the city of the 19th century and the city down through history was humans and animals living very, very close together. Any picture of 19th century America and you'll see horses all over the place, you know, and the cows in the back alleys and packs of stray dogs the cattle being moved through the streets toward the slaughterhouse. This is the way the world was in cities as long as there's been cities uh, and, until this change that happened in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century.
1: Let's dig a little bit more into that, into into the scene in which your book takes place. Your story takes place in the final decades of the 19th century, from the end of the American Civil War to around the turn of the century, mostly in New York, but also Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and to a degree, the entire continental United States. But mostly, your story does take place in the late 19th century American city. So could you paint for us a bit more in vivid detail the what city life was like at the time?
0: Well, one thing that's really in striking contrast to our own times is that animals were everywhere. Horses jammed in the streets, traffic jams of, of carriages and, and trolleys and so forth packs of stray dogs that were really a rampant and, and a serious concern that would lead to a, the city's declaring a war on dogs every summer to try to control this cattle uh, herded through the streets toward the slaughterhouses which were really uh, speckled throughout the the city rather than in the c- central locations like Chicago at this point so human beings were were living cheek by jowl with animals uh, in a very intense way in the Gilded Age city. It was just the way life was in cities down through history, but people began to think about animals as a nuisance, even at the same time that they began to feel a greater sense of empathy toward animals. There's a sort of a conflict here where animals are both treated probably more brutally than ever in the industrial city. And at the same time, you get this movement that Henry Berg personifies of developing a greater empathy and concern for animals.
1: I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about the the conditions out of which Henry Berg and the animal welfare movement arises. So some of the types of cruelty towards animals that people at the time would have seen and that some people, as you say, were repelled enough by that they set off on this new course towards welfarism.
0: Yeah. They, I mean, the obvious evidence of cruelty that people saw on the streets every day was the mistreatment of horses. and Horses were the motive power, the energy source for so much of building the city and running the city. And... They were treated essentially very often like machines that could be pushed to the point of, of breaking. People became talented through the 19th century at figuring out just how much energy they could get out of their horses, how much oats they had to feed in and how much stabling, and at a certain point they would work them to exhaustion and, and recycle them to the rendering plants. And so this, this kind of treatment of, of animals as the city is expanding, as there's enormous economic growth and pressure. To push animals to the breaking point. This was evident in the streets every day, with overloaded streetcars, with teamsters whipping their horses, and traffic jams, and with the fact that people, when they got done with their horses, sometimes would just let them loose to die on the streets. So that's you know that's one obvious place. But I think there are a number of other areas where we where people were exposed to cruelty to animals. Another obvious example is the slaughterhouses which apparently became sites of entertainment for neighbors who would go and watch animals being slaughtered at butcher shops and slaughtering houses across the city and lots and lots of stray animals I think it's a it's a commonplace of the period to think about dogs with cans tied to their tails and being teased and taunted and, and cats being tortured and shot at by by rocks and that sort of thing and that that's you know that's a that was very real. There was a, 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 lots and lots of stray animals uh, and lots and lots of people with time on their hands to uh, express their, their worst impulses toward them.
1: It was, it was news to me and a bit of a revelation to read that at the time, before the invention of insect repellent, flea powder and, and such, almost, almost all cats and dogs were just kept out. Even if they were kind of kept as pets, they essentially lived outside so you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of dogs and cats who are mostly just roaming the right. streets. I
0: was really su- surprised to read that uh, and to learn that people, when they would go away for their long summer vacations, would sometimes just let their dogs out and assume that they could survive on the garbage that was quite abundant in the streets. Uh, and then they would just find them and you know hope to recover them when they came back. So yeah, I mean, there certainly was at the same time, there was a, this is the era when we when Americans have a growing fascination with fancy breeds and the pet culture that we know of today starts to emerge in this period. But at the same time, dogs were just, just everywhere and were considered, even though those that people were affectionate toward, did not want them in their houses quite often.
1: It's, it's interesting that Berg's compassion, or at least the triggering incident for Berg seems to be when he was working as a diplomat in Russia, and he witnessed some Teamsters beating a horse. And there's there's also a tale told about the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, where really, before he, he was his mind was going, but the last thing that he did was he saw someone in Turin outside of his apartment beating a horse, and he wrapped his arms around the horse's neck and started weeping and, and begged the man to yeah. stop.
0: Yeah, that story that Berg told, that really is the founding myth for the SPCA, that Berg, surprisingly, you know, people pinned him as, as the great animal lover of the late 19th century, but he really didn't uh, love animals very much. He, he probably loved them less than, than many people. He didn't particularly, you know, he didn't own pets. He didn't care about, you know, owning a horse in particular. And it wasn't animals that he loved so much, but he did hate the sight of human cruelty. And being an ambassador to St. Petersburg, where apparently the Teamsters were even more abusive of their horses than he'd seen in the streets of New York, he finally broke one day and, and demanded that one of these Teamsters drop his whip. And when it worked, Berg just says this was you know, an epiphany for him that changed the course of his life. He was at that point 53 years old. He had been sort of a failed playwright, a wealthy dilettante who spent most of his his years in uh, the capitals of Europe, uh, writing very, apparently very bad plays and sentimental poetry. And suddenly he had a, you know, really a conversion experience to what he should devote his life to. And he was quite an unlikely character to suddenly be roaming the streets of New York and taking on teamsters and, and dog fighters and the sort of rough characters that he very often had to, had to battle in his new job as a humanitarian.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about his background, his upbringing in New York, the economic class from which he came, the connections that he had? Who who was this berg that that would found the ASPCA?
0: His father was a, you know, made the family fortune as a shipbuilder in the early 19th century. Berg tried that out for a little bit, but really was not interested. He went to study law for uh, at Columbia College, but dropped out after two years, which was not uncommon for the sons of wealthy people to dabble in college and then move on. Uh, and then he married a socialite and traveled to the capitals of Europe for most of his, his life and loved the theater, went to the theater. And uh, I think in the end, that was important for him because it turned out that In in order to be an effective defender of animals, he had to have a bit of the theatrical to him. He had to understand how the media worked. He had to understand how to dramatize the issues that he was trying to uh, draw attention to. So I think in the end, his life as a failed playwright actually probably did him some good. But in the end, I think he felt a little bit like he was frittering away his time. I read a letter that he wrote at one point that said, you know, I, I... you know, I've dined in all the great capitals of Europe. I've been at all, you know, all, the, all the, the, the great sites. I've indulged every whim of mine, but I've never been as happy as I am now going after cruel men in the streets of New York and fighting these battles. So, you know, I think he, he found his calling quite late, but he spent then the next 20 years building the SPCA movement across the country.
1: You, you quote that letter in your book. It's, it's quite moving. Mm-hmm um
0: it's not it's interesting it's that he's not the only one of these great reformers of the 19th century who had one of these epiphanies and suddenly made a decision to devote his or her life to to this cause this this kind of you know berg was not a conventional religious person in any way but this was certainly a conversion experience you know in his soul and in his conscience that others described it over the years as the riddle of the 19th century that henry berg uh, would be doing this And of course, people never forgot that he was a wealthy patrician because he, even though he was roaming the streets of New York and uh, wrestling with Teamsters at times, he still was impeccably dressed. He wore his top hat and a a silver cane, an ascot, and maintained a sort of formal dignity about himself in in his work that always reminded people that he was, you know, where he came from in terms of his class background.
1: If I could just read a a quick passage from your book that I think wonderfully illustrates his character. Sure. Quote, One evening, Berg appeared on a wharf, watching a team of drovers curse and club a herd of cattle that they were boarding on a steamer bound for Liverpool. When the hardest clubber plunged a sharp goad into a steer's hide, Berg brandished his cane, shouting, Don't you dare do that again! Berg! The man yelped. As a police officer moved in for the arrest, the culprit bounded down the gangway and leapt into the icy Hudson. Only after reaching the safety of a nearby rowboat did he turn back to telegraph his defiance by thumbing his nose at Berg. A reporter on the scene noted that the great humanitarian could only respond with his usual mournful gaze, his mustache dropping in melancholy disappointment at the pathetic failures of his fellow man, (laughs) end quote. I loved that passage. I think you, just in that alone, it, it captures something essential about about this figure.
0: Yeah, it's funny that he was, you know, he was easy to satire. He, he, you know, he reminded people so much of of the, you know, what we think of as the popular depiction of what Don Quixote looked like. He, mm-hmm. with his drooping mustaches and his sad eyes. He actually apparently was quite clever. Uh, When he gave talks, you know, he gave talks all over the country promoting the SPCA movement and people went expecting some dreary dirge. And while Berg was clearly very skeptical and and disappointed in human nature in many ways, he also could be very entertaining. But he didn't himself laugh a lot, I don't think. Nobody ever describes him as as, uh, having a lot of fun either on the job or off.
1: Moving on, could you tell us a bit about his newly founded New York's American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals?
0: Once he had this epiphany in in St. Petersburg, he headed back to the United States. This was during the Civil War, and he stopped in in Britain, where he met with the founders of the first such movement, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which had been founded in the 1820s by people who were also supporters of the anti-slavery movement in England. So he learned a lot. He picked up, you know, the information about the, the rhetorical strategies and, and, and the laws that had been passed in England. And he brought that back to the United States and gathered in 1866, a group of very distinguished leaders in New York City gathered at Clinton Hall. And he announced what he called a, a Declaration of Bill, of Bill of Rights for Animals, where cruelty would no longer be tolerated for any animal. Nobody was really in favor of cruelty. I mean, this is sort of one of the lessons of the book is that plenty of people are cruel. They're against cruelty in general, but they don't mind the cruelty that they particularly, you know, is in their own best interest.
1: Uh, It it might be helpful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. It might be helpful here just to interject that by cruelty, he, he understood that as unnecessary cruelty. So not no slaughter of livestock, but That's
0: right. I mean, Berg Berg was not an uh, advocate of sort of what we would think of as animal liberation at this point. What he is proposing is that human beings have a right to use animals as they traditionally have, but that they have no right to force what would be called unnecessary pain. So, yes, you can slaughter a cow, but at the same time, you have to do it in the most humane way possible. You can exterminate a stray dog if animal control is necessary But you have an obligation to try to figure out how to do that in the way that is the least painful to the animal, that sort of thing. So in that sense, he's it's, you know, it's animal welfare rather than what we would think of as animal liberation. Or, you know, this is really the beginnings of animal rights. But they've certainly expanded since then.
1: Okay, I I apologize. I just wanted that to be clear. But let's if you don't mind, resume. Let's keep with the story of the ASPCA.
0: Okay. So after Berg makes this uh, speech and and gets the so many people to sign on, the police chief, the mayor, many distinguished supporters, he gets a, a charter from the state to found the first SPCA. It's called the American SPCA, the ASPCA, but in fact it really just represents New York and, and at the start only New York City. One of the most important elements of that new law was that it gave Berg and his organization, the right to appoint deputies, of so badge wearing agents who were authorized to go out into the streets and enforce the law. Up till that point, there had been laws against cruelty, but they were not enforced. And what Berg figured out was a mechanism by which the SPCA movement could actually make sure that the laws protecting animals were enforced through these agents. They sometimes made arrests on their own, uh, and other times they would call on the police uh, to help them. And by law, the police were supposed to help them do this. And this was really transformative for the movement. It really gave teeth to the
1: law. There's something that really stands out for me. There's a scene that you recount where an agent is arresting someone, and the person says, you know, this is is my horse. I, I can do what I want with it, which has, I'm sure has been the age, the age old thing. And the agent says, yes, you have rights, but your horse also has rights. Was, was that the idea of animals having rights? Was that brand new with Berg also, or had that existed before? And Berg's most important innovation was that additional police power. right?
0: Well, no, I think you're absolutely, you're you know pointing to another really important part of his argument, which was, you're right, that animals themselves have a right not to be, you know, to experience cruel behavior. Up till this point, most of the laws that had protected animals protected them because they were other people's property. So you were not allowed to kick somebody else's dog or knife somebody else's mule, that sort of thing. Not because the mule or the dog had any particular... Uh, moral standing, but rather because you were hurting somebody else's property. And so another huge part of the advance that Berg put into this law was an argument that while livestock, while horses were mentioned as sort of central and important to this, the law said all other animals are also protected. Berg took that idea, which really surprised most of his contemporaries and really pushed it to the limit and protected all kinds of animals that otherwise nobody would consider to be uh, have any sort of moral standing.
1: It seems like maybe we're trying. We're still trying to figure out Berg. And in one sense, it's clear that he is very concerned about the impact of animal abuse on humans. You already mentioned that. It seems from your book that that is clear. And yet, there are other times where it seems like maybe there is some compassion there. For example, and in, in his the vehemence with which he insists that. There's one great scene where he says, they're, I think they're talking about the turtle, and he says, there's three types of things. There's minerals, there's plants, and there's animals. Which Which one do you think the turtle is? <laughs> right. So that insistence on encompassing all of the animate matter, let's say, Into this category, it does seem like there is some compassion there too.
0: Oh, I certainly agree. I I think that's true. I I wouldn't want to minimize just because he didn't love pets or consider himself to be an animal lover. He clearly felt a deep sense of, of compassion, and and he extended it far beyond what most people consider to be even rational. When he defended turtles that were being shipped upside down, deprived of food and water, ropes run through their fins, headed to the soup pots of New Yorkers when Berg tried to protect turtles, as you're suggesting that, you know, the defense said, well, turtles aren't animals, right? They're fish or they're crustaceans, or we don't really know what they are, but they're certainly not animals under the animal protection law. And and Berg had to push back. And, and you know, he faced immediately then that argument, people saying, well, if you're going to protect turtles, well, then what about lobsters? You know, what about mosquitoes? What about rats? What's our obligation to all of them? And Berg pushed the boundaries and and said essentially there in no case is it acceptable to cause unnecessary suffering to another creature of any kind.
1: It's one of the fascinating aspects of your book is that from I think from Berg's perspective, his thought was really quite rational. He began with an assumption that animals suffer and therefore they should not suffer unnecessarily. And yet you also you present the other perspective which is that to his contemporaries, he appeared to be quite irrational. And it, many people really struggled to understand what he was talking about and, and where he was coming from.
0: Yeah, I think it's important for us you know, to, to go back and see the origin of our own dilemmas that way. And I think you, know, you can see the, the logic to the arguments of, wait a minute, we're, we're taking this lamb to slaughter. We're about to cut its head off and chop its body into pieces and, and eat it. How can that animal have rights up to that point? You know, what obligation might we have to this to this animal if we also have the ability and are claiming the right to, to do this to it? So, yeah, for all of these animals, people were needed to rethink their relationship. You know, there was much empathy toward animals, particularly horses and, and dogs and cats up to this point. So it's not as if Berg invented this, but I think he invented a mechanism that really forced the conversation for people to think, about this as a as an important moral question really for the first time i think the intensity of the debate on both sides the kind of love and hatred that berg provoked and the ridicule you know and he was a hero to many for doing this for finally advancing the conscience of human beings on this on this matter and at the same time he was brutally satirized by others
1: could could you talk to us a little bit about, more about that the the reception he received in in editorial pages and maybe on the street, you you definitely go into that in your book where you you show both sides, uh, dueling editorial pages and people. I guess people on the street were interviewed in some cases at the time. And there's you give an example where a, a trolley is stopped because Berg is arresting its driver for abusing his horse. And inside the trolley, people are debating. Some are saying, "Well, it's the it's the driver's." property and other people are saying, well, he's being abusive to the horse. Right. So could you tell us a little bit more about the both sides of that discussion that were happening at the time?
0: You know, it's important to remember that Berg is the head of a movement that very quickly spread across the entire country, especially in the, in the North and the Midwest. SPCAs were founded. Thousands of men and women joined these organizations. So people people were ready for this. It wasn't simply Berg doing this. and And many of them, considered Berg to be their leader and they, they admired him. But even some of those felt like he was pushing the conversation too far. And so lots and lots of times editorials first, they ridiculed Berg entirely as, as a sort of quack who was defending the rights of turtles, but not before too long, they started to say, well, we, we agree with the idea that cruelty is wrong and we're glad there's an organization that's doing this, but Berg is pushing this too far. He's an eccentric. Some said, well, I you know, I can't follow Berg all the way. I can't worry about the rights of turtles. I can't worry about the rights of pigeons and rats and, and so forth. But I'm glad he's forcing this conversation because we need to have it. So Berg was considered to be one of the most famous men in New York City that, during uh, the heyday of his career. People understood him to be the man who loved animals and every time he did something new and you know and, and he was, he was a master promoter of the cause he recognized that if he, if he did something that he considered or the world considered to be outrageous that it would get in the newspapers and people would be thinking about the rights of animals they didn't always agree with him and lots and lots of editors considered him to be a nuisance particularly when he when he touched on some of their interests you mentioned the trolley is you know that's a great example because whenever berg did this, he sometimes caused huge traffic jams. You know, there's there are great images of trolleys, 50 of them lined up behind Berg because he stopped one of them and he's arguing with the Teamsters about getting their their horses back to the stable. Some people had, you know, they had to get out and walk. And they had to face the question, well, is, you know, is is this animal's right to kind behavior more important to me than the fact that I now have to have to hike a couple of miles to get to my home or my workplace.
1: It seems like in the, and this is no surprise, but your book conveys it well. And in, in the beginning, there was a lot of mystification. People were just dumbfounded by this, this curiosity. Of course, of course he, there were people that were immediately sympathetic, but there were many editorial pages that were just kind of dumbfounded, if not downright contemptuous of his view. And then by the end of his life as you point out just now and in your book it was almost just just de rigor that you would say well he's doing good work but we just we disagree with his tactic but in his lifetime him and and his fellow welfareists were were able to change the conversation so that the the general reception was transformed from skepticism to we We agree with this completely, but the tactics we have to talk about
0: right. We were talking a, a while back about the use of these agents. This did really represent an important move in the way we govern ourselves. You know this is an early example of a sort of what we would think of as a special interest organization getting something like state power, right that these agents were chosen by the ASPCA, and they were out in the field acting really on behalf of the state for protecting the the, the law. And other historians have developed this in in more detail than I did. But, you know, the argument is made that this, this technique of these specially appointed agents was something which then was applied to the protection of women and children and ultimately evolved into what we think of as a sort of social work and an important part of the social welfare network that we developed. But at the time, this looked like tyranny. Berg is, Berg is denounced not just for the fact that he loves animals and, and, is, and is causing other people to you know, feel bad about the way they were treating animals, but he was also often accused of being a tyrant, You know, of using his power to put people in jail or to threaten people with fines, even though he was really still a private citizen uh, representing the special interest of the SPCA. So it's a really, actually, I think, a very interesting moment in the development of, of American democracy and, and how the law functions that was pioneered by Berg's Law.
1: I, I live in New York's, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I think it was maybe 15 years ago, I, it was in the early term, first term of Bloomberg, I believe, and he wanted to ban smoking indoors, and people howled. I remember even the the New York Times editorial page people were universally opposed to this idea. It was tyranny, it would end it would end the bar and the restaurant scene and 10 years later no one would no one almost no one including smokers would ever conceive of going back to a to a situation where people were smoking indoors. And you encounter a, a similar situation I think in your book where in the beginning he is forced to, or at least he he resorts to using, in some ways, coercion, the, the agents to impose his, his will or to impose the law on these Teamsters and others. But as people stop doing it physically, as they abuse animals less, in reality, a transformation inside follows where over time, even the billionaire or the millionaire owners of these companies came to see that actually if our horses are treated better, that actually also is better for business. And it's tough to know what comes first, the the transition in physical behavior, forcing them to abuse the animals less and the transformation internally of developing a greater compassion.
0: Yeah, I think that was a it was a struggle within the movement. There was a, an argument or a, a diversity of opinion within the movement about whether or not to in- The the goal here was to encourage and nurture the conscience, especially of young people through humane education in order to transform society. Some of the advocates suggested that if you could teach young people to be kind to animals, they would ultimately be kinder to human beings. And in the end, if you did it right across the the globe, you would have world peace. Berg was much more of the mind that there are certain people who are just going to be cruel. And that while you can't change them inside, you can't make them more sympathetic, uh, what you can do is use the law as a threat uh, and and stop them that way. Right. So really, they were the movement was working on both both tracks, Uh, some very optimistic about the possibility of human nature. And then Berg, always a little more pessimistic and more convinced that the threat of punishment was necessary for a lot of people to to get them to curb themselves. And as you're as you're suggesting, the, the trolley companies and and p- the public more generally began to say, "Yeah, the streets actually are a better place to be now that people can't freely flog their horses and o- overwork them." Certainly, by the time Berg died in the 1880s, people saw what they felt was a real difference in in the streets.
1: So, talking about the the different approaches, let's if you don't mind, let's expand our perspective a little bit and talk about the growth of the SPCA. Could you touch on George is it Angel or Angle and Caroline Earl White and then just give us a sense of how the SPCA developed.
0: Yeah, you know as, as a sign of the fact that this was really the right moment in 1866 when Berg launches the movement almost simultaneously in Boston and Philadelphia there are people who are trying to organize the same sort of movement. Berg was the first in. He was the, the loudest, most articulate voice at the start. So he really became, in many ways, the leader. But the other branches of the movement were just as important. George Angel was a retired lawyer who saw uh, the, the outcome of a terrible horse race in which the horse died after running this long race. He vowed that he was going to do something about this and, and gathered up some of the wealthy reformer philanthropists of Boston to, to start the uh, Massachusetts SPCA, uh, still named after, after him as their founder. And he was a great advocate of this humane education approach. He was really the pioneer in developing the uh, literature, developing techniques for reaching uh, children. He developed a newspaper called Our Dumb Animals that was distributed all across uh, the state and then across the country uh, that was making the case that animals had had souls, essentially, you know, that they had feelings. And there were you know lots of stories that, about uh, faithful dogs and and feeding the birds and that sort of thing, as well as news about uh, what the movement was doing. So you know, so Angel was really important, I think, in developing what became the Humane Education Movement. On the other side, Carolyn Earl White is a fascinating character in Philadelphia. She grew up in a Quaker family, a reform family. She was also interested in founding an SPCA in Philadelphia and was part of this. Uh, But once it was founded, the the men in the movement said that that women had no place as uh, leaders in the organization. So she formed a separate branch, the women's branch of the movement. And really uh, worked for the next fifty years as a, as one of the most important innovators. She was a strong advocate, a founder of the Anti-Vivisection Society, and it was her movement that really pioneered the the creation of the dog shelter ahead of any other branch of the movement. All three of them organized and promoted. You know, once once word got out about what they were doing, they were frequently contacted by people uh, across the country who said, please come here and explain to us what you're doing. We want to found an SPCA for ourselves. So the ASPCA is really a set of smaller organizations in each state rather than a single national organization, according to this model. And by the time Berg died, I think just about every state uh, in the union at least had one on the books, uh, some more effective than others.
1: In hindsight, with the with 2020 perspective, we've come to uh, appraise Berg as revolutionary in many ways, and also of his time in other ways. Could you talk to us a little bit about that, the the ways in which Berg was a radical for his time, and also the ways in which, from the perspective of, say, today's animal rights activists, he he was quite conservative and didn't go as far as later generations would go?
0: Right. I think he, you know, he got the conversation started. He pushed it. He was, he was as radical as, you know, he actually faced the possibility of being shut down, his, his organization shut down by the state legislature several times because of, he was so radical. So it's easy to, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, you know, he doesn't, advocate for vegetarianism, doesn't advocate for anything that would look like animal liberation today. He's really more concerned about, about the proper treatment of animals as pets, for example, or as livestock, but he's not really advocating for what became, you know, what we would think of today as animal rights, as these creatures, as independent moral beings with their own legal standing. Of course, most of society is, is not there at this point. So in that sense, Berg probably still reflects the center of opinion on, on a lot of those matters. One th- thing you, that stands right out when you look back at Berg is that he was sort of a classic Yankee elitist and nativist who was pretty sure that most of the cruelty that was going on in New York City was because of immigrants, particularly Irish immigrants, that he considered to be the cause of most of the sort of sadistic brutal and ignorant violence against not just animals, but also against women and children. In that sense, he's clearly uh, reflected the values of a late 19th century wealthy Yankee.
1: He's certainly a flawed character in your telling. And yet he envisioned that the law would cover all animals, not just the cute or familiar ones. He argued that all animals have consciousness, something mainstream science through behaviorism would deny into the 1980s. -hmm. He rejected not only vivisection, but seemingly zoos outright. I know that he signs off on some of Barnum's stuff, but in some of the quotes that you have, he he seems to say that these animals have been torn from their homes and are are not having a very good time in, in this condition.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a time when, when zoos and circuses are enormously popular. You know, this is really a a, a 19th century invention that P.T. Barnum was so central to, to developing in, in the United States. And Berg was of lone voice in suggesting that this was completely inappropriate to be yanking elephants out of their native environment. And that clearly they had to be, they were being mistreated, that the pain and suffering experienced by zoo animals made it morally unacceptable to have zoos and they should just either humanely kill the animals or return them back to their native environments. This was an argument, obviously, as you're suggesting, way, way ahead of its time that only very recently have people started to consider that or act on that that position.
1: And and I, I would I would venture to say many people have not yet begun considering it. Sure. You write, quote, The claims Berg made on behalf of animals challenged his society's long standing assumption that animals were property, objects with no rights that humans were bound to respect. The story of the SPCA's founding helps us recognize Henry Berg and his allies as the forebears of all those in our time who are working to promote animal welfare, and I'll add animal rights. Looking back in hindsight, what did Berg accomplish? What is his legacy?
0: I think the most important thing is that he institutionalized kindness right that he found a way not just to not just to feel this personally not just to advocate it as a writer as a you know as a speaker but to create an institution that of course is still with us you know the SPCAs and and many many other animal welfare movements organizations uh, are following in this in this model you know it's easy to forget how important that is that that it's not just speaking on behalf of animals, but it's also finding ways to incorporate that into the law, to advocate for this, both in the legislature and also in, in the public opinion, uh, and to organize and strategize with like-minded individuals across, across the country and across the world. You know, this is, this is a, a huge challenge, I think for any reform and, you know, Berg really, I think, you know, in addition to being out there in the streets, defending individual animals, he also created a model that is still very important to us in terms of protection of animal welfare. One thing that I I thought was interesting and important about thinking about the limits of this is the lack of an environmental consciousness in this movement. And I think this is something which continues to challenge the animal welfare and the animal rights movement, the distinction between being concerned about individual animals and, and and their treatment and thinking about the much broader issues of the treatment of animals and at an environmental scale. This was something that Berg was aware was going on. I mean, people would appeal to him for help, for example, with destruction of the buffalo, which was going on right in this time period. And it was much, much harder, I think, for him to make that visible. People could see and empathize with the beating of dogs in the streets or you know the cruel treatment of a cat by a pack of boys or the whipping of a horse, it was much harder to imagine and even conceptualize something like the extinction of the passenger pigeon or the, you know, the destruction of the buffalo. And so there's a way in which the animal welfare movement was not able to speak to some of those bigger questions. Bird was aware of that limitation but was not able to find a way to overcome it to get people to to see the mistreatment of animals happening on that on that grand scale
1: you touch on that in in your book towards the end, and it's fascinating. I think today the situation is is almost reversed uh, Not enough people care about the environment. Don't get me mistaken, but I think there is a perception among some animal rights advocates that um now we have we have brought a lot of attention to to the forest. People are generally aware that climate change is an imminent threat. But many, many, many people still are not too attuned to questions of individual animals suffering, what's happening in slaughterhouses, those types of things. So yeah, I, I think the case could almost be made that the situation is a bit the reverse now, where, more people I would say are intimately passionate about the climate and the, and the fate of the planet and are less passionate and empathetic towards the suffering of individual animals.
0: Yeah. Here's what I, here's what I came to think about that in, in, in examining this, you know, the reason that this was an urban movement was that Berg was able to work with people who are seeing the cruelty in front of them. You could not avoid seeing the mistreatment of horses. If you were walking the streets of, of New York, for example, or the or the the annual roundup of stray dogs that involved clubbing them in the streets and d- dragging dead dogs in for their bounty, you know, the, just the lots, you know, you could not avoid seeing cattle goaded through the streets and headed to a slaughterhouses where crowds of people would gather around to watch the slaughter. Some of these problems were solved because Berg was able to to very powerfully dramatize the cruelty, to touch people's consciences, to get people to agree that these things are wrong and to either stop them or at least admonish those who did them. But some of these problems were solved by making them invisible, right? No longer were were dogs being rounded up and killed in the streets for a bounty when for the stray dogs. Instead they were herded to a central location and, and dispatched in a way that became invisible. Same way, Berg was a very strong advocate of moving slaughterhouses out of the cities because he felt it was a terrible thing to transport the cattle all the way to the cities that they suffered along the way, but also that human beings were then exposed to slaughter. And as I said, you know, started to see it, uh, some people, as a sort of a form of entertainment that Berg was convinced would make people callous. So the solution is to centralize and, and move out of the city the slaughtering process, ultimately concentrating it in Chicago and, and training people to eat meat on ice instead of from their local butcher who just had, had uh, slaughtered the, the livestock that day. That made those those things less visible. So right now, when we face the these ag gag laws and you know animal welfare advocates are trying to get us to see these things, they're they're hidden from view. You know their their challenge is in some ways the same as Berg's, which is to make sure people see these things because it's through seeing that that our our sense of sympathy is is actually touched. So some of the things that Berg solved really just hid them, probably in ways that were more humane. Certainly the aunt, you know the dog shelter and and humane euthanization was was a, a better thing. Certainly concentrating slaughter in Chicago rather than forcing cattle onto a, another long train ride east was a good thing but in the end it's hard to look at those and say that the animals were really much better off as a result of this
1: yeah absolutely your book does wonderfully cover both of those the two sides of that where he did not either he didn't have the focus or he just wasn't able to communicate the the concern for the larger ecosystems and communities and species but on the flip side, in, in improving welfare, so let's take, for example, the removing the transportation of cattle, which was re- really horrific, Days days of standing, unable to lie down, no food, no water, crowded in terrible conditions, in complete pitch dark. In removing that, the intimate familiarity with cruelty goes away, and so people do lose touch of the fact that pe- animals are still suffering as part of the agricultural process. I think many people don't even think about that now because it's not in front of them.
0: Right. That's right and and you know states are passing laws to make it harder for people to think about it. They're making it difficult for for animal welfare advocates to actually explain to us what's going on uh, in these in these uh, slaughterhouses and factory farm locations. For that very reason
1: yeah, the egg ag, the egg laws are are fascinating. I, I, I should um, I really should try to speak to someone and, and bring that onto the podcast mm-hmm. because it's very important. It's quite surprising that that's I, I don't know enough of it to know how that deals with free speech and stuff, but it's certainly a provocative topic. Yeah, yeah, it is. So one final question. The story of the fight against cruelty to animals does not begin with Berg, as you suggested earlier. You yourself note that he was influenced by England's Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals founded in 1824 which is 42 years before Berg founded the ASPCA and the RSPCA wasn't the beginning either there were people such as Bentham and others who were concerned for animals even before that do you know does a, a history of the broader the broader fight exist and if not, is can I nudge you in the direction of writing that history? I I do think that that story is also worth telling, and and I would love to learn more about it.
0: Well, certainly there have been histories, uh, good histories about the the arc of the the SPCA as it's evolved since since Berg's founding, and a uh, good book. I'm it's, the title is escaping me now about the history of the of the the Royal SPCA. Many books, I think, you know, look more more at the sort of philosophical trajectory of. The development of of the movement, so less focus on the institutional development of of these uh, the SPCA and and other related movements.
1: It's an interesting history, and reading reading your book just made it uh, very uh, clear to me that that I would like to have that I would like to know the broader history. Um, you, you do a really a wonderful job of telling the American history, especially in and around the years of Berg's life. But I would have loved to have that pushed even farther back to learn about the history of it in England, where, where that came from. But that's matter for another book.
0: Right. I think, I think the one piece of this that's interesting to explore is the relationship between this and the anti-slavery movement. The, yep. the Royal SPCA is, uh, you know, Will, William Wilberforce and and others, you know, were, were involved in both causes and, it's, it seems not a coincidence that the SPCA starts in 1866 and, you know, right after the Civil War and really picks up a lot of the, the rhetoric and the strategies uh, of the anti-slavery movement in the United States and makes the argument that, that the abolitionists had made that slavery is, is wrong because it produces cruelty and suffering and, and also that it damages the slave master in profound ways, warps their conscience. These are arguments that were, were you know, very quickly adapted to the animal welfare movement. So there's really, I think, an interesting connection between the two, as there is a connection on the other side to the development between the animal welfare movement and then the the wider attacks on cruelty against women and children.
1: Well, something we haven't even touched on that your book only touches on briefly is the fact that Berg also was, instru- I think it was Berg also was instrumental in founding the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children.
0: That's right, and that gets back to the power of these these agents because people, you know, as people began to to see that Berg was effective in controlling uh, cruelty to animals, he was approached by people who said, "Look, I know you're, you know, you're using this law to protect innocent horses and dogs, I know an innocent girl who is being uh, abused and needs protection." And the movement really had to had to grapple with this. Berg intervened, protected this girl, and helped to found the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. But at the same time, he and other leaders of the animal welfare movement were worried about combining forces. You know, some said, "Well, we should be against cruelty of, of every kind, so let's let's make ourselves the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and Children." And Berg and George Angel and, and Carol and Earl White all said, we need to not divide our, our focus here. If we do that, we're gonna you know, ultimately be thinking much more about uh, women and children, and we're gonna lose the focus on animals. We need both organizations, but we don't need to combine them because you know, they face different issues and because animals will always lose out if they're put in the same category as humans uh, in terms of uh, you know, our protections.
1: I think it's Caroline Earl White, you quote, who says, for every 99 organizations focused on humans, it's okay for us to have one that's devoted to animals. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
0: No, I think I'm, in that, in, I'm dwelling in that moment where I'm, I'm uh, entertaining a lot of glimmers of ideas for the next book. So, not sure what they are yet.
1: Perhaps a history, a broader history of uh, animal welfare or animal rights. do that, Professor Freeberg, you write in your book, "quote The pieces are here right now for a major paradigm shift in how we think about and interact with other animals. Indeed, they have been here for quite a while, but few are bold enough to say enough is enough." End quote. You're writing about Berg, but on behalf of all of our listeners. Thank you for being one of those few bold enough to say enough is enough. I do think that covering Berg and the subject matter is very helpful and important, and I thank you for it.
0: Well, thank you, Mark. I've really enjoyed the chance to talk about it.
1: Your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, too. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Ernest Freeberg about his 2020 book, A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement. It is a fascinating history of an important subject. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.